Hi, I'm Jackie. Good to talk to you today. We're starting a three-part series on sex, and today's conversation is about what we learned about sex from our faith communities. And let's be honest, for many of us, it wasn't that helpful. We could even say it might have been harmful. Yeah, that's what we're talking about today. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. Um, Before we dive in, let me preface by saying I didn't grow up in a Christian home or in the church or around all of you Christians. So you could say I grew up with a secular worldview when it came to sex and sexuality. And I have to be honest, in some ways, what I learned from the secular world was more on spot, actually a little more truthful than what I learned from my Christian community. But there was a whole lot of other stuff that I learned that was very un-Jesus-like. Some of that stuff came from my home life. I had a very sexually perverse father, and one of his favorite sayings around our house was, women are only good for one thing, and most aren't very good at that. Pretty, right? Yeah. So you could say that some of what I learned from my upbringing was was helpful, and some was actually quite damaging. Set me on a trajectory for being sexually active at a very young age. And I say that because I want you to know that's who I was. That's where I came from. That's the worldview that shaped me before I met Jesus. And then when I met Jesus and I moved to Dallas Theological Seminary, I started attending my very first church. It was a Bible church. And it was in that church that I started my very first women's Bible study. It was on Tuesday mornings. And the Bible study was like broken up into two sessions. The first half was like this big gathering where we all hung together and listened to this female Bible teacher. I loved it. And then we broke up into these like breakout sessions, I think is what they called them, where you discussed different topics, different issues. And I can't even tell you what I chose or why, but I can tell you what I was taught because that was my first exposure to someone talking about sex from the conservative Christian perspective. She was an older woman, very well-dressed, smart-looking, very polite. I'd say she was in her 50s or 60s. I thought she was so knowledgeable because she was so old. (laughs) I don't quite look at it that way anymore. But she um, had been married for a long time and had been a Christian for a long time, so I figured that what she had to say was probably on spot, except it wasn't. Here's what she told me, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically she told a group of us women in the room, hey, when your husband gets ready to go out of town on a business trip, let me just pause there, assuming all women are married and only men go away on business trips, hey, women, when your husband is about to go on a business trip, be sure to have sex with him so that he'll remain faithful. And it was like I heard this, 
heard screeching in my head. I didn't say anything out loud because what did I know? But inside I was thinking, that ain't right. Did she just tell me to prostitute my body? Because it sounded like that. At minimum, what she seemed to be suggesting was that I use manipulation in my marriage. Something didn't sound right. It would be years later, I'd learn why. Why it didn't sound right. Because the truth is, it violated what God said about how he created us to be and how we were to live with one another. See, God made us as his image bearers, meaning God had passed down to you and I some of his attributes, some of his characteristics. We call that communicable attributes, characteristics we share with God. By the way, there are attributes we don't share with God, like being all-powerful or all-knowing. Those are called incommunicable attributes. We don't have those. One of God's communicable attributes that we do have is God's relationality. In Genesis 1:26, God said, "Let us make human beings in our image, us, our." That's the Trinity: Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Some theologians use the word perichoresis to describe the Trinity. Theologian Alistair McGrath says that the perichoresis is the idea of and listen to what he's saying is the idea of community of being in which each person, while maintaining their distinctive identity, penetrates the others and is penetrated by them. Our creedal statements testify that within the Godhead, there is no power struggle or hierarchy. Rather, listen carefully, there is a constancy of giving and receiving and affecting and being affected mutually. This, this, ladies, is the example set by God for how his children are to relate to each other. So when I heard women have sex before he goes out of town so that he'll be faithful, I knew, I knew something, and I was right. Something fell way short. Now, I am not a sex therapist, nor am I an expert in sexual ethics, although I've read a whole lot by those who are. And one guy named Stanley Grentz, he wrote a book called Sexual Ethics, And he tried to define for us the purpose of our sexuality defined in the Genesis narrative. And this is what he says. He says the Genesis Genesis narrative indicates that the sexual nature of the human person forms the impulse that drives an individual beyond the self to seek bonding with others. I really like Deb Hirsch's definition of sexuality. In her book, Redeeming Sex, she says... Sexuality can be described as the deep desire and longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to connect with, to understand that which is other than ourselves. Essentially, it is a longing to know and be known by other people, emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually. She goes on to say that all of our sexual relational needs can be summed up by two essential desires or or longings. Um, social sexuality, and our gentle sexuality. Implicit in each of these is that we might experience as the longing to be completed in the other. I like all of these definitions. The idea is our sexuality, which is way more than the act of sex. 
Because we're sexual beings, whether or not we're engaged in the act of sex. I mean, just think about it. We walk around for 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. And most of that time, we're walking around. We're not engaged in the act of sex. And still, we are walking around as sexual beings. The point is, our sexuality is designed to drive us out of self and into otherness. And that's why we see in Genesis this whole thing where God creates man. And then he says, Ain't good for man to be alone. I'll make him a suitable helper who's just right for him. That's Genesis 2.18, in case you didn't know. And this is the very first time God says something in creation isn't good. And what should we expect God to do next? Well, create woman. That should be the next thing, except it's not. Instead, he instructs man to name the animals. Over a span of time, Adam is walking around and watching and naming animals. Like he looks at a frog and he says, Well, I guess I'll call you a frog. And as he identified the frog by naming him, he also learned something about himself. He's not a frog. He sees a four-legged animal and he goes, I'll call you a dog. And it's through the naming process that man discovers there is no other creature like him. He's unknown and left to carry out God's work alone. So after naming the animals so that man could get this, God puts man asleep, took a rib from him, and creates woman. And he brings woman to man, and man responds, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Now, many of us, myself included, have heard pastors kind of like make jokes about this, right? Like as if he's like, ooh, that's the hot babe. But this is not man objectifying woman. Sexism did not exist in the garden, ladies. Today, a woman's worth may be tied to her sex appeal, but in the garden, our worth, our purpose was grounded, anchored in the very fact that we are God's image bearers. So when man said, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he was using language of wonder. Wonder is when the boundaries of our lives are opened up and we realize we were made for something higher. He was communicating, finally, someone who is more like me than any other creature. It turns out men are not from Mars and women are not from Venus, but rather we are both from Earth. We are more alike than any other creature God made. God's intention for this relationship was shalom. It's the word peace that we have in our scripture. Shalom is the fullest of flurrying in every dimension, physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually. See, in our birth story, all relationships were right with God, self, and each other and the created world in which they lived and moved. So when this woman said, women, have sex with your husbands so they won't cheat, that just seemed to miss something. It was so low. The bar was low. So God makes woman a her, a suitable helper, Ezer Kanego. Suitable, that word Kanego means corresponding partner, face-to-face. It even has this idea of friction, The point is, her presence is an invitation for him to come out of himself and into otherness, to turn away from aloneness and independence toward a face-to-face relationship and the mystery of interdependence. And isn't that what we see in the Trinity? The mystery of interdependence? This is God's vision for us. And in my opinion, when we reduce it to women have sex so we won't cheat, well, (laughs) We have lost God's vision. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, we don't live in the garden anymore, Jackie, just in case you didn't know. Things are broken. 
Well, yes, that's true. But we are redeemed people, aren't we? And we have a choice which narrative we will live in. We can stay where the bar is low, or we can strive for the higher calling set before us in the creation story. And I don't know about you, but I'm going high. And I know that some of you are saying, well, what about 1 Corinthians 7, Jackie? I was taught that. It's right there in the Bible. Paul said, the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives her authority over her body to her husband. I know, I know we learned that. I'm pretty sure that's what this older woman was getting her stuff from too. But I'm just not sure the interpretation is right in light of the context of 1 Corinthians 7. It's a bit of an inaccurate application, I'd say. So let's dig into that. The context. Paul was addressing new Christians in Corinth who, in reaction to the sexual promiscuity of the city, Corinth was known for being sexually immoral in all kinds of ways. And these new Christians decided that one way they could show they were different, separate, set apart, was to be celibate. Celibacy was being elevated in the beginning church in Corinth. We do this kind of stuff too. We don't celebrate celibacy necessarily, but we do consider like who's more spiritual and who's not, right? Missionaries and people who wear black robes and white collars, we consider them more spiritual, set apart. At that time, it was celibacy. And that's why Paul begins his chapter, begins chapter seven by saying, now regarding the question you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to live a celibate life, but, and then he goes on to talk about married people and single people and divorced people and widows. And when we hear him say in seven verses, chapter seven, verse three and four, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual need and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. And let me just pause here and say this was not only an Old Testament law, it was also customary law. In Exodus 22.10, we read that if a man took another wife, quote, he must not neglect the rights of the first wife to food, clothing, and sexual intimacy. Notice there's nothing said about the wife meeting the husband's sexual needs. Why? Because her body was his property. It was just assumed. So let me continue. The husband should fulfill her sexual needs and she should fulfill his. Then the wife gives authority over her body to her husband. Not a shocker since her body is his property. But what Paul says next is a shocker. And the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Because in that culture, his body by law was his and he could do with it whatever he wanted. Lots here to go into, but here's my point. Why is Paul telling these married people, have sex? Because they weren't. They were living like celibate people in their marriage because celibacy was becoming the elevated thing in the new church. Later in verse 20, Paul says, yes, each of you should remain as you were when God called you. Stay as you are. In other words, married people, you should continue living like married people, have sex. So yes, it's good for married couples to have sex. But we women, we're no longer man's property. We have agency, which means how much and when and where and why and how is based on mutuality and flourishing. It's not some transaction or insurance policy. How many of you have felt used because this verse was misused? 
let alone how many of us found out the hard way it didn't work anyway. Yeah, I know. We've talked, haven't we? It's painful, right? What about the other messages that go hand in hand with this one? You know, one of them is men need more sex. They're just more sexual than women. By the way, people are not categories. There's a continuum that each of us find ourselves on. Some men want more sex. Some women want more sex. And do you know, uh, want to know what happens, how this message impacts women who desire more sex than their husband? She thinks one of three things. She's either not pretty enough for him, he's having an affair, or he's gay. Yeah, that's what happens because of these kinds of messages. How's that helpful for a marriage? These messages can do damage. So let's look at it. He needs more. If he goes without sex for 48 hours, I think his penis is going to fall off. By the way, it won't. This is the message I was getting from one of my male colleagues, a pastor. He said he couldn't get in a car alone with me because, you know, men think about sex every 60 seconds, which, by the way, is not true. It's time we start thinking a little more critically when we hear these things. Is that true? In fact, it's not. And if it was, I'd have to say what I said to the man. Hey, if a woman came to me and she said she had the urge to buy a blouse every 60 seconds, I would say, oh, well, because that, that's just how God made women to shop, right? So you can't help it. It's just how she's wired. No, that's not what I would say. I'd say, you know what? You've got an addiction. It's time we speak truth back to these statements we've come to embrace as if they are thus says the Lord. Did you know this whole idea of men can't help themselves, they think about sex more? It's new. It's not been the thinking of the church for centuries. In fact, the dominant belief was just the opposite, that women were dominated by sexual appetite, right? Were the tempstress. Listen to what one church father, St. Thomas Aquinas, who lived in the 1200s said. He said, women are dominated by their sexual appetite and that men are ruled by reason. Yeah, that's one of, what, one of our church fathers said that. <laughs> that was the dominant belief until recently. It wasn't really until around the Victorian age, say around 1840s and 1900s, we see a switch in thinking a switch in teaching, and then the Bible slapped to it as thus says the Lord. I'll try to summarize the switch, but I have to admit it's really an oversimplification, but this isn't supposed to be a history lesson, so bear with me. Okay, here we go. The Industrial Revolutions, it's in full swing, and it brought about extreme changes in society. The economic unit was no longer on the home, in the home, on a farm. Now it's in the factory. And along with that came the development of the middle class. Stick with me here for a minute. The marker of the middle class, making it, if you will, in America, was being able to have your wife go home from the factories, a stay-at-wife, a stay-at-home wife. And this became the ideal, kind of like an American, the American dream. And with this came the idea of the doctrine of separate spheres, women more, more inherently designed to keep the home and nurture kids. And men were more naturally designed to work outside the home and provide. That's it. That's what we came up with. Alas, we came up with words like breadwinner and homemaker that came from this kind of thinking, this doctrine of separate spheres. And of course, this ideal, Christians backed it as if God was the one who said it. But here's the thing. It was actually only attainable by 10% of the population. 
Because at that time in America, most families needed both people working to put food on the table, roof over the head. And of course, this Christian ideal that was preached didn't have anything to do with blacks in America. They were excluded. Anyway, it's during this seismic shift that we see a change in women's reputation. She went from temptress, which is how the church knew her for centuries, to now becoming desexualized, asexual. As one author states, a woman, quote-unquote, would not respond to sexual overtures unless they had been drugged or depraved, at least not a good woman, the kind of woman a man would want to marry, and the kind of woman a good girl would wish to be. So yeah, all of a sudden, virtue and purity, she became known as this and asexual. It was said that if a man uh, had a wife who enjoyed sex too much, he, he didn't know what to do. He thought something was wrong with her. We have letters with guys saying that kind of stuff. Something's wrong with her, even though God made her with a clitoris, which the function of that clitoris is to give pure pleasure to a woman. Don't tell him. He didn't know. And this is when we see a shift in how we viewed men. Now they're the only ones with sexual drives, and those desires and drives are way out of control. And it's the woman's duty, the one who's morally pure, the virtuous one. It's her job to help man rise above his inherently animalistic tendencies. As one historian noted, men have visited prostitutes throughout history, but now, during the purity movement, when woman's virtuous purity was the standard, now when they went to visit a prostitute, they felt guilty about it. So she becomes the standard and the gatekeeper. And next week, we're going to talk more about how that um, ideology impacted women becoming involved in the social ills of their day, the suffrage movement, the temptress movement, which a lot of that was wrapped around sexual immorality, believe it or not. We're going to talk to a professor next week about that. The point is the teachings we receive from our conservative faith communities were rooted right here in the Victorian age where there was a change in society from farm to factory, economics, middle class, redefining gender roles, all of that played into what's now been called the sexual purity movement. And what I want you to notice, it's not just simply in the Bible, but rather it's the lens for which the Bible became interpreted. And that lens has impacted many of us. We've heard these same messages, maybe wrapped differently, but the essence is still the same. That's why so many of us women were told we couldn't wear bikinis to the church beach camp. Remember that? I remember when Madison brought home that paper for me to sign, saying that she would wear only a one-piece. I was not happy. Not because I care whether she wears a one-piece or a two-piece. I really don't. But what I did care about was the messages she was receiving about what it means to be a woman, a sexual being. And I remember calling the youth pastor and saying to him, hey, why aren't you requiring clothing restrictions for my son Hampton and the other boys on the trip? Because Hampton was an athlete and he had a six pack. And like, he doesn't have to wear a shirt and I'd like to know why. You see, the messages that both my daughter and my son were getting was that it was my daughter's responsibility to be the gatekeeper for the boys on the trip. It also said that she wasn't sexual. She's not tempted by seeing some guy that has this great build, even though, by the way, Scripture says something different. Song of Solomon. Yes, have you ever read it? Actually, have we ever heard it taught by a woman instead of a man? That's a whole other issue. But in Song of Solomon, we have a woman who went after the guy asking for sex. She pursues him, 
It's in chapter 3, 1 through 4. She initiates chapter 7, 10 through 13. It's right there in the Bible. The Bible tells us that women are sexual. And this message that my daughter was getting was that she's not. She's not tempted. The flip side of that, what my son was receiving and all the other boys on the trip was that they couldn't control themselves because they're pigs. Again, that's not biblical either. I remember one time meeting a guy in Steve's office who basically said to me that um, he had a 16-year-old daughter and that he was never going to allow her out of the house because he's a man and he knows that all men are pigs. That's exactly what he said. And a matter of fact. And I asked him if he was a Christian. I actually already knew he was. He said yes. So I looked him in the eye and I said, well, then that's not true. That you and guys in general are pigs, that's not true. Because Jesus said you're an image bearer. Yeah, to be made like God. And, and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, one-third of the Trinity, to live in you. The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, yeah, that Spirit is in you, transforming you to be more and more and more like Jesus. Yeah, it was an awkward conversation, I have to be honest. But that, ladies, that's the biblical worldview. And I think it's time we start challenging these statements that we make as if, as if they are thus says the Lord. They're not. In fact, I sometimes wonder, have we, by saying these statements, have we set the bar so low that we've created a self-fulfilling prophecy for men? Let's ponder that for a minute. I mean, how low can you go? Oh, come on, guys, you can go lower than that. It's how you're made. This kind of teaching, ladies, is dangerous. It's damaging to our brothers and to us, and it dishonors what it means to be made in God's image. We can do better than that. Another thing we learned comes straight out of the purity movement, and I've heard many women say it as if it's truth, and that is that men are more visual. That's why how we dress as women is so important, so we don't want to make our brothers stumble by dressing too provocative or too sexy. Again, because why? Oh, we're the gatekeepers. Now, I'm not saying go ahead, ladies, and be naked, and those men just have to deal with it. But I am going to push back on the statement, men are more visual than women. Because again, in Song of Solomon, we see something very different. In chapter 5, 10 through 16, we have a woman describing her lover's physical characteristics. The text, it's informing us that she's visually stimulated by his appearance. It's in there. Go ahead and read it. But not only does the text inform us, we know this experientially too. You know, whenever a woman says to me that flippant statement, men are more visual, I pause for a second, and then I always ask this very simple question. Okay, so if I, let's just say like Matthew McConaughey or John Legend walked into this room right now, shirt off, you're good? Like not looking? Got no problems? Come on. When I make that simple statement, inevitably I get this like aha look. Yeah, like suddenly they realize they've been duped. Yep, you and I, we've been repeating things we've heard without even considering. Is that true? And what impact does that have on us when we buy these lies? How much energy, guilt, shame, clothes shopping have we given to this? How does this impact a woman's psyche when we say that she's asexual and he's visual and she's not? How does it, I don't know, does it make her more uptight, unable to be free with her body, even in marriage? 
Yes, I know it does because we've talked and it's painful, right? For me, this idea of men being more visual has impacted my vocation. I'm a female preacher and I don't wear a black robe. I belong to a tradition that wears normal clothes on stage. And I remember the first time I was to preach from the pulpit in our church, I was the first woman. And you'd think that the biggest concern would be the Bible. What was I teaching? How well did I have it down? But it wasn't. The biggest concern, I mean, I had phone calls from people around the city, let alone people within my church, discussing with me what I'd be wearing. How will I do my hair? That was a really big one. You don't want to wear it down, Jackie, because it looks wild. And no cleavage, pants, but not too tight. I mean, it was ridiculous. And I remember thinking, when men come and visit to preach on the pulpit, this pulpit on Sunday, do they get this kind of instruction? I suspected not. I knew what was at play here. I was a woman. And some worried my appearance might cause the men in the audience to stumble. Because, you know, men are more visual. In my training, I learned that preaching is truth poured out through personality. But with each warning over how I addressed, I was told that some men would not hear the truth, but rather be focused on my sexuality. And of course, I'm not saying there aren't professional standards in the workplace by how we dress. Of course there are. But what I was being told, it kind of felt like I was being asked to leave my body outside the sanctuary, that I needed to be sexless in order to be taken seriously. And the problem is I have a body. I have a female body. I'm a sexual being. God made me that way. And he said, by the way, it is good. The body, my body, your body matters. Paul talked about the body a lot. Just read 1 Corinthians and, th- and see, circle how many times he talks about the body. And then go ahead in his other epistles. Why? Why did he talk about it so much? Because he was going up against this Gnostic teaching that said the body didn't matter. And therefore, whatever you did with it, including sexuality, sex acts in the body, totally irrelevant. And also, if the body didn't matter, then the bodily resurrection of Jesus didn't matter. And that was problematic. Paul states over and over again, the body matters. My female body, your female body matters. Ladies, it's the location in which our spirituality is lived out. Think about that. And think about this. Jesus came in the flesh. Why? Well, the first chapter of John tells us he comes in the flesh so that we can know the invisible God, the visible, showing us the invisible. Well, you know what? Our bodies do the same thing. Our bodies say something about who God is, the invisible God visibly seen through our female bodies. And yes, when I use the word body, I'm not a dualist here. I am talking mind, body, and soul, all that goes into that, of course. I'll never forget after that first week I preached, I happened to go to a fundraiser um, with my husband. And we were sitting with some people at this table, and there was a man to my left. I'm sorry, it was to my right. I really don't know my left and right very well, but it was to my right. And he attended our church, and, it, it, and he had been there the first time I preached in the pulpit. And he turned to me, and he said, hey, I saw you preach on Sunday. Now, mind you, I don't know this guy from, ho, oh, I mean, I've never met him. Hey, I saw you preach on Sunday. 
Yeah. Yeah. Do you know you move your hips a lot? And I just went silent. And I looked at him. I didn't stop. And then I just blurted it out. Why are you looking at my hips? And then I got quiet. I just waited for that to sink in a little bit. It occurred to me, for decades, I'd been expected to sit and look at a male body, preach, and not check out his pecs or his legs or whatever. And I wanted my, bo- my brothers to learn how to sit in a pew and see a female body move without sexualizing me either. I have breasts, and I actually have large breasts, and I move my hips. Deal with it. I love how one woman said it. She said, you will not separate my work from my body. My body and my work are one with my being and with my soul. I offer them to you together. That's an earnest version. The less earnest would be, I will not show up here bodiless so that you can feel safe. It's powerful. I think it's time we change how we talk about our bodies, male and female bodies. I'm going to be doing a whole other series on that. Another message, the final one we're going to talk about today, but I've by no means um, exhausted it. But one of the last ones I want to talk about is that if you have sex before marriage, your life is ruined. And I've heard like wrapped into this also said, you know, um, if you save yourself for marriage, sex is going to be great. Well, let me just say this. After being married for 32 years and pastoring women for 25 years, let me tell you, sex inside marriage is as complicated as sex outside of marriage. Can I get an amen on that? Sex before marriage and you're ruined. We've heard these messages. A woman's virginity is gold. You ever noticed it wasn't so much for the boys or even older women? Right. It seemed like we were mostly concerned with young women who hadn't been married yet. Now, I say or older women because I had this experience once. I was at a conference, and this older woman came to me. She was in her 80s, and she approached me. She said, I'm 80, and I've been widowed for decades, and I have a boyfriend, and I want to have sex with him. What do you think? Is it okay? That's what she said to me. Sometimes you have to catch your breath when you're at these things, you know? And I, I just said to her, well... Did you ask Jesus what he has to say about it? And she said, well, yes. And I said, well, what did he say? Well, he said no. And so I looked at her and I said, well, then why are you asking me? I mean, it's kind of funny, right? Interesting. After this happened, I happened to be at a pastoral staff meeting where there were a bunch of men, and I asked them what they thought. Was it okay for a woman who's in her 80s? She'd been married forever. Her kids, she can't have kids anymore. She'd been widowed. She's now, can she have sex with her boyfriend? And it was fascinating because it wasn't like this clear cut, no, sex outside of marriage is wrong. There was all this hemming and hawing. And I wondered, what's the difference? I'll let you ponder on that. Virginity, it's gold. We had these purity ring ceremonies, didn't we? You know, where the dad gave a ring to you and you committed to remain sexually pure and the ring was to be given one day to your husband. Again, the assumption is that all girls get married. This kind of stuff sets up women who remain unmarried with all kinds of angst and confusion. And then there was the petal story. You know, for every guy you have sex with, you you take a petal of the rose and you pluck it off until finally all that's left is the thorny stem to give your future husband 
And I remember sitting in the back of a conference and hearing a guy share, a, a male pastor share that story. That and I shouldn't say story, the analogy. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, are you saying there's something Jesus can't redeem? Well, are we? Are we saying Jesus can't resurrect and restore all things? I mean, he can't restore our sex life? You see, that teaching flies in the face of the gospel, doesn't it? I know. I know why we teach it. Because we're afraid. I would say a whole lot of our messages that we teach about sexuality have more to do with fear than they do faith or Bible or Jesus. One of the voices I, I found helpful in thinking about this idea, well, is there anything about what you bring into marriage if you've had sex before marriage? And there's so much more to dive into here, but just one, I want to just offer up one thing. It's not complete by any means, but it's, it's by um, a, a professor from Duke Divinity named Lauren Winner, and her and I taught together several times, and she's written a book called Naked Sex. And it's there that she talks about what she thinks happens and what the consequence is about having sex prior to marriage. And I think some of it's helpful it's not complete, by the way, but it's helpful. I'll, I'll try to summarize it. Um, you can Google her and see it more extensively. But she says, sex outside of marriage is fundamentally based on an unstable relationship. And she argues that we tend to do things sexually in unstable relationships that we might not do otherwise. And that can misshape how we understand sex. Marriage, on the other hand, is fundamentally stable. It is day in, day out, over the long haul. And most of sex is basically, if I have to use the analogy of food, meat and potatoes. Now, sometimes it's a drive through and other times it's like a five-star meal that takes over for hours. But more often than not, for the next 40 years of your life, it's meat and potatoes, so to speak. And so it can take some unlearning and relearning, quote-unquote from Lauren Winter, to what it looks like for stability and real intimacy to be sexy. And I think to myself, when you first get married, it's a very um, vulnerable space and time in marriage of, of trying to become one and having to deconstruct what you learned, your body learned about sexuality and unstable relationships and, and having to reconstruct in a stable relationship, like that just adds extra to something that's already complicated. Well, that's just one idea. But let me ask you, do you think all women feel guilty about premarital sex? Do you think all women carry their previous sex partners into the marriage bed? What are some other ways we can talk about this issue of premarital sex and marriage? I'd love to hear your thoughts, even some of your questions. You can always dialogue with me on Jackie Always Unplugged Facebook group. But let me end with your words. I asked you what you learned about sex from your faith communities. And here's some of the things you said. Sex is bad. By the way, many of you repeated that statement. Sex is bad. Sex is bad. Sex is bad. Don't do it. It's dirty. Don't talk about it. Shh. Good girls aren't sexual. Men, it's okay. Women, it's not. It's a woman's duty to her husband. You're dirty or slutty if you even think about it. Sex without the intent of procreation is wrong. Women are less sexual than men. If you have premarital sex, you'll go to hell. 
Yeah, how about that one? If you have premarital sex, you'll go to hell. That's pretty toxic, right? Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, and he invited us into it, a place where there is repentance and forgiveness and resurrection. We are invited into a place and space where we become creatures through his work on the cross and the power of his Holy Spirit, new creatures, new creations is what Paul says. This is his story and his invitation to us. And the way we've been talking about being embodied sexual beings and engaging in the act of sex has fallen way short of God's vision. Next week, we're going to talk about, um, with, with this professor, Kristen Dumu, about the history of the sexual purity movement. And then the third episode, I'm going to be talking with my fellow colleague, Jula. She and I have both been pastors. She's a counselor. We both run nonprofits that ennoble women. And we've often struggled with how to find adequate answers to the questions and situations women come to us with in regards to sexuality. And so we're going to be talking about that. Probably not going to have a bunch of answers, but man, I got to tell you, we have a lot of questions and I bet you do too. So let's keep talking. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.